I believe you need a very good like mental model to actually get past like certain plateau points in your growth. Because you don't know like what great looks like. You only know what good looks like, or you don't know like what terrible looks like. Right? So you need multiple reference points to actually develop a strong mental model so you can evaluate things accurately. Welcome to the Exponential Growth Podcast, where we demystify what it takes to break into tech. I'm your host, James Hudnall, and my goal is to highlight real-life examples of people moving into careers they love, so you can too. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by Casey Dye. Casey, welcome to the show. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you do. Yeah, James, glad to be here. So right now I lead uh, data engineering for Capgemini. So we're a global tech consultancy, mostly focused on financial services and go-to-market right now. A lot of solution design for go-to-market solutions within the data and ML services space. Um, our practice covers nationwide uh, with about 80 to 100 um, engineers ranging uh, from time to time in the practice, depending on demand and okay. so forth. Um, so yeah, I'll take kind of take it way back where I actually came from a non-traditional background. I was hoping you'd say that. Yes. I grew up around a lot of family businesses, actually. So both my parents were entrepreneurs when we came to Canada. Um, so grew up around a very entrepreneurial environment. They didn't really work for other people for too long. So they always like looked at starting their own ventures and then moved from like business to business. Um, naturally, that took me on a path to kind of follow their uh, footsteps and enter business school. So at first, there's always attention. So most parents want a stable career and so forth. Yeah. And there's like what you want to do. So that's like exploring that middle ground. So they actually didn't want me to take a more entrepreneurial path. They wanted me to go down like more um, standard path, go down medicine, mm -hmm. law, engineering, okay. and so forth. Okay. I always didn't have much of a tech background actually growing up. Uh, I didn't like touch anything tech related for a long, long time. So we settled on middle ground, which is like go to business school and study finance. So that was like okay. early beginnings. And then that led me to my first role at Procter & Gamble. Okay. So up until this point, the expectations of your parents notwithstanding, did you have like a, a dream or something like a profession picked out that you might want to explore? Or were you kind of just trying to keep the peace and, and find that, as you said, the middle ground to, to do something? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I actually never thought of myself fitting neatly in any kind of standard career path, but there were definitely okay. activities that I lean more towards, um, anything okay. analytical, like quantitative. So in okay. school, like I actually really loved uh, tutoring and teaching others. So it started even back in middle school where uh, I would tutor other students like topics, uh, anything that I would learn, okay. right? Uh, just like pass on that yep. knowledge. So I always have gravitated towards teaching. Okay. sharing that knowledge and then ran like a bunch of tutoring clubs uh, as extracurriculars in high school building up to university okay always had like a hidden uh interest i think to go down a teaching path of some sort or just kind of like help people share knowledge and all that right yeah um, okay yeah but um didn't pursue like the standard teacher path <laughs> for various reasons okay. so like yeah i guess business school was like a good middle ground I figured it's like, hey, I've been around businesses a long time. I really like kind of the entrepreneurial side of it. Never shied right. away from quantitative stuff, financials, right? So that's always okay. the numbers is kind of like a starting point for me as a default back yeah. then. Um, I've moved yeah. a bit since, but yeah, that was always my like my crutch at the time. 
And you glossed over it just a little bit, but so you'd mentioned business school and then on to, I think, Procter & Gamble. So in those, uh, was it four years or, or whatever that period was, what were the things that you felt were maybe most useful and maybe most translatable to the things you do today? Did you find those years invested useful? Uh, absolutely. It's actually paid okay. steady dividends in every subsequent role I've had in various okay. forms. One of the things that um, I see a lot of people climbing the ranks in technology get blindsided by is when they need to handle a P&L um, for the first time on their own. So they're always thinking about like how to build better tech, how to ship better product, all of that stuff. But when they actually need to handle the administration side of things, I find that there's like a yeah. steep learning curve. It's like, how do I read a P&L? How do I manage one, right? right? How do I use finance as a lens uh, to like conduct my investigation of what can be improved? So those okay. things I was like always blessed to innately have. Okay. <laughs> so it's kind of paid dividends okay. uh, throughout. Yeah. So you graduate business school, you mentioned Procter & Gamble, even though this part may not be tech related. I'm curious, what was the interview process like? Did it go great? Was it horrible? Did you crash and burn? What did you learn? Uh, yeah, so I did two summer internships with them prior to joining them okay. full-time, actually. Um, okay. So both in finance, I mean, I had a good feel for what it's like to be at the company throughout the two internships, and that carried a bit into the full-time role. I, I liked actually less the finance function itself, but being more on a cross-functional team. So you're always put mm -hmm. in a cross-functional business unit, and then you would have a category of products that you would oversee as a cross-functional group. And you okay. kind of run it like a small portfolio, right, within Canada. So at the time, like that cross-functional part always intrigued me, how like the various functions have to interact with each other. So it's like the interplay between uh, marketing and sales versus finance uh, versus procurement, supply chain and demand and all of that. Yeah. I guess you're exposed to a lot of different aspects of it. Well, maybe to like some detriment to like overly focus on the box that, uh, you're assigned and this is like your role. I always like playing on yeah. the intersections and that'll kind of dovetail into uh, what led to the pivot as well, where um, okay. I noticed a lot of the actual issues crop up on the intersections itself rather than the functions okay. themselves, right? It's usually when like okay. two or more groups have to interact with each other yeah. that there's some source yeah. of tension and very few people actually specialize in brokering that interaction because everyone's kind of focused in their yeah. space, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. It's like empathy. Not not that empathy is hard, but I think sometimes we get so focused in our role, it's hard to see through other people's perspectives. And there's definitely power in so doing. So yeah, for sure. So yeah, Procter and Gamble. How did that go? What would you learn? I learned that uh, you can be when you're on the business side of things, <laughs> you can be given a lot of responsibility uh, right out of the gate, which they did give me. It was over like. $150 million business unit, right? In top oh. line, and you're handed a massive budget and you're making bets with big players like big retailers, Walmart, Choppers, Loblaws, all that stuff. So that's kind of where it led me to say, hey, we're throwing all this like money out there. Is it really working? And are these decisions somewhat reproducible at minimum? So if yeah. we even give like the same people, I put them in a room again with the same starting point, same inputs, is that a reproducible process? Because I noticed a lot of the problems yeah. that were handed to solve, such as forecasting, um, measuring campaign effectiveness, things that are like called other things, but it's really just masqueraded as uh, A-B testing experimentation, that those naturally lead down to a path that it can be systematically solved or there's some like pretty like mature methodologies out there, right? Um, yeah. Which is what caused me to explore data science a lot more. 
that was my entry point into tech because it was all about like so how to better solve the problem and going where the bottleneck is. Yeah. Did you start thinking this way almost right out of the gate? I guess after you went through your onboarding, or was it a little bit into the role? I'd say I really started noticing it six months into my full time role um, because the internships okay. themselves were kind of short, so you're just focused on tactically. It's yeah. like how to push out a few good projects and present well. Um, so you kind of yeah. can survive until the next round, right? <laughs> so okay. yeah, the yeah, longer yeah. view doesn't come in until you kind of entrench in a team and like observe the dynamics and I so forth. It. Yeah. Okay. And so the $150 million account responsibility that you mentioned, was that during the internship? That was uh, after. So we handled um, like the skin and personal care products for uh, Canada. So okay. like think Olay skincare, Old Spice, okay. deodorant, all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. okay. So how did that play out? How soon? It sounded like data science you had mentioned, how did you start exploring that? Yeah. So it goes back to the problems that were like tasked to solve within the PNG role. So um, forecasting, um, even like um, we did a lot of campaigns, right? Because it's mostly distribution focused because a lot of the uh, manufacturing, product design, everything, it's already handled at the global business unit level. Um, so you're trying to measure like effectiveness of your spend, right? Because you're holding a huge amount of funding and you're working with their cross functionals to say, hey, is this like campaign with retail? Is this go-to-market strategy working or not? Um, so I felt like, well, it's a lot of gut instinct and a lot of uh, just like whoever has the most charisma or like loudest voice in the room kind of pushes the decision that way. And then that caused me to think, mm -hmm. hey, is there a better way? And there in fact is at least to like mix intuition with some yeah. scientific process, so to speak, rather than um, purely rely on intuition for all things, everything, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So that caused me, it's like, hey, is there a better um, thing I can add to my problem solving toolkit? So that led me to data science naturally, because a lot of those problems fit very neatly into data science, such as forecasting, experimentation, okay. deciding what Did metrics to measure, yeah. Did you Google data science, how to learn data science? Uh, no, like on the on the surface, it looks very coherent, right? <laughs> like what you would tell someone in a job interview and so forth. But I just kind of like had an itch to solve this, like, hey, there's a, a better way. Part of it is Googling, like you said, and then part of it was also um, the industry was very, very bullish on data science at the time. So that was around 2015. And a lot of those um, programs started emerging. So um, back in my homeschool, uh, Shulik, where I did my undergrad, um, they started a master's program and a couple other schools as well. So I started taking a look at these master's in analytics programs. And I felt like, yeah, I... Partly it's like a curiosity, just want to add stuff to my problem solving toolkit. But also I looked at the career path of going down like the CFO route, right? Um, even like okay. past director, just talking to people like for their head, like decades ahead of me. Um, I, I just found like there's something to the tech path that scratched those itches I had even like growing up, right? Yeah. Uh, it's like highly analytical, really like the fast pace that it offers because I like learning new things. And it, it's always a good feeling to have that there's an infinite ceiling, so these things, yeah. um, there's probably like one technology domain moves faster than one person can possibly learn in a year. Um, I actually like yeah. that feeling, right? Um, so like yeah. people who can actually embrace the chaos and learn really, really quickly yeah. um, have an inherent advantage in like chaotic environments, which I like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, no, I totally agree. And it looks like I, I see now you got your master's degree in business analytics from, I think, the same yeah, school same that you school. did your undergrad yeah. in. What was the thought process behind that? Was it path of least resistance? Because you already knew the, pretty, the network. And the... Um, look for yeah. something local, right? Um, so yeah, it's, it wasn't like as 
deliberately planned or all that, right? Where you have a spreadsheet of pros, cons, and you compare like every single dimension possible. I would expect that from you, Casey. So that's a little bit surprising. Yeah. Like I, I when I go and like talk to other people that uh, like role models and stuff, they're like super analytical on the surface. And when they present yeah. it, it's like all well thought out and everything. The one yeah. myth is like not everything in life is that thought out. It's a lot of serendipitous moments. I felt like I hadn't checked enough of the boxes that it worked for me. And I figured, hey, let's just do it. Right. Because if you're not yeah. committed long term to go down like the finance path, then it's better to pivot yeah. and also pivot when the market is really, really hot. So yep. I decided to retool. So that was my uh, kind of okay. uh, coming over to like from business to tech. And were you still working during that time or did you stop? No, I stopped work. Um, and then I had like about a eight, nine month break before the semester started. Uh, okay. What'd you do in that time? We had another family business running at the time. Oh, okay. So yeah, just like helping my parents run that business. Anything related to the data science? Were you trying to view their business through that lens or were you just really helping out? And uh, what I find is like with family owned early stage businesses, you're always focused on a lot of the operational aspects first and analytics doesn't really come in until much later, right? If you're yeah, having fair. your first three customers, there's not that much customer analytics to do. And it's actually right. counterproductive. <laughs> but for yeah, yeah, large yeah, yeah. enterprises, it's like there's so much untapped like gold mine in terms right. of like their data stores and everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that's part All of right, the reason so why I didn't to... continue the family business path. Cause I felt like it's more intellectually rewarding to go work on those problems. Right. Cause I didn't get to yeah. in a smaller environment. And I feel like you, you could probably still share what you're finding to the extent that it does relate to the family business. You can still kind of help them out where appropriate while still yeah, scratching your yeah. itch. Like, of... um, one of the biggest, um, anti-pattern let's see in data science and still see it today is like everything has to be the super precise model that's like running in production everything but there's like a thousand steps you could take to get like incremental results as you go before you yeah. like get to the point where that model actually pays off or where you can actually develop yeah. a production grade model so an example of like when you do pricing you don't have to have a pricing model with all the elasticity built in and everything you could apply some heuristics and that could be your strategy for a while Right. And then you measure. Yeah. It's more about like measuring, monitoring, and then like constantly improving it a little. If right. if you're good to like sit on that heuristic, it could be like a very crude heuristic, like industry benchmark average plus like a margin of plus minus margin of something. Right. And that works yeah. for you. Um, yeah. you leave it alone because there's always other things you can focus on. It's like not sure. over optimizing is something I wish I learned earlier. <laughs> when you're yeah. in an yeah. analytics profession, you always try and squeeze out that last marginal uh, point of yeah, but it's actually yeah, it's like a kissing grain to you. Yeah, yeah, counterproductive to do so. Yeah, so you get your master's. Where did you plan to go back to PNG? Did you plan to look for new opportunities? No, what, I, what I, I think I was sold at that point. I wanted something tech related. I actually okay. wasn't dead set on pursuing like a engineering career path. I was exploring other things like going to a startup, um, do more of a product management function, um, explored consulting. I always liked consulting even back in undergrad. Um, but because like sometimes we're carried by inertia that it's like, oh, I have this financing going. It's like 200 chips. It's good. Let's just keep going on yeah. this. Right. But it was like, like the broad exposure of consulting, uh, especially early on. I believe you need a very good like mental model to actually get past like certain plateau points in your growth. Cause you don't know like what great looks like. You only know what good looks like, or you don't know like what terrible yeah. looks like. Right. So you need multiple reference points to actually develop a strong mental model. So you can yeah. evaluate things accurately, which consulting it, yeah. it 
you're not really tied down. You're actually like the name of the game is change. So there's always yeah. like new projects, new client, new environment, new people. That was great. Yeah, I'd say like just going back on my master's a little bit. I was asked like, hey, you pursued an institutional like formal education path, and that seemed to like have gotten you success afterwards. But I wouldn't always like attribute it back to that. I would say like, well, that happened to work for me in my situation because it's like non-traditional coming in. And that point, um, there were fewer boot camps, there are fewer like resources online. Now like everything has shifted. Plus, like I came from a pretty non-traditional background. Like I try to find other people coming from business side and, and going into tech and staying in tech. Yeah. It's like two, three percent on a good day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah well, this is like CS or some quantitatively driven like math undergrad and STEM STEM related. But then what that did teach me during the master's is an introduction to the various domains and topics and just like a skeleton of how they work. Plus, like it also the most important thing is that it forces you to learn how to learn on your own. That's a big one. That's the main value. I'd say like the knowledge, um, you quickly outgrow the knowledge, especially when you start working in the field. Yeah. yeah. And that's just such a good point that you brought up there, Casey, because I can't speak to every boot camp, but most of the boot camps that I guess people I've talked to that have been to them and the boot camp that I went to, they definitely taught us the technical stuff. Mm -hmm. But to your point, they really taught us how to learn new things because almost as soon as the curriculum is published, you know, it, it soon becomes outdated, as I'm sure you already know, because things evolve, technology evolves. But learning how to learn, learning how to to look up solutions to problems that you run into, that, that's, I can definitely see, you know, a year into my professional role as a developer, that's the invaluable asset that they teach. And you don't have to learn that through a boot camp. And to your point, you don't have to learn it through a, I guess, traditional means of education. But however best suits your particular character makeup, mm -hmm. I think is definitely an aspirational thing to look towards and trying to achieve is learning how to learn easier said than done. I definitely wouldn't say that I'm an expert at it, but I definitely am better at it than I was, you know, a few yeah, years ago. Yeah. Like I take learning how to learn or called meta learning. as just one of the biggest force multipliers in your career, regardless mm -hmm. of where it is. It gives you optionality, which is huge. Um, yeah. It's more pronounced in tech because things move quickly and you need to make those adjustments yeah. really quickly. Right. Um, yeah. So I actually like have in my probably, if not number one, number two, top two uh, skills is just meta learning, uh, especially yeah. learning in chaotic environments where the feedback loops are not always accurate and delayed. Because um, yeah. in structured environments where the feedback loops are very quick, it's a lot easier to learn because you just figure out what works, what doesn't, right? When the feedback yeah. loops are sometimes noisy, or when they're delayed, like your action doesn't yeah. really, you can't really tie it to the outcome. Um, yeah. th those are quite noisy. So like um, one yeah. of my like interests, uh, like hobbies is like poker. So that's like a very good example of that where the feedback loop is very noisy. Um, you yeah. can misplay a hand completely and get bailed out, right? But you could play a hand perfectly. Um, but then the expected value isn't like what you get paid out each hand. Um, right. So learning right. to like, yeah, using that as like a mental model, right? Like carrying it over yeah. to other places, noticing that the feedback loop's not always accurate. That's one of the yeah. critical things to learning. Um, yeah. Yeah. Outside of a classroom environment where there's an answer key to the tests. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, life is certainly not like that. Life does not that closed circuit learning to your point. The other point about the delayed feedback loop, especially when people progress to more senior roles, um, the delayed feedback loop problem is way more pronounced because when you're an IC, mm -hmm. 
um, everything you do at the task level, you get like feedback sometimes within the same day or hour and so forth. Um, but then yeah. when you move to like manage a team, it's like slightly more delayed, right? Um, then it's like yeah. when you move to like manager or manager roles and like overseeing an org, then the feedback loop can be as delayed as six months, 12 months, 18 months and so forth. So yeah. it, it's really hard to gut check whether like you're making the right calls at that point. So that skill actually becomes like even more important than that self-awareness that there is a delay yeah. in terms of the feedback loop there. So you get your master's degree, you sounded like you enjoyed consulting at the time. Did you interview for any consultancies? What was the, what was the plan next? Yeah. So up to this point and even afterwards, I've been very, very fortunate in my uh, interviewing journey. I've never had those moments where um, those horror stories you see often, right? Especially with the economy right now. Um, 500 plus applications, as many interviews, still no results. Um, when I interviewed for the PNG role, for example, that was, I think, the second job interview I picked up ever. <laughs> and it just kind of like led me in, into it. Um, with the Accenture one, it was purely a serendipitous moment. So I had two other offers locked up at the time, um, one at a bank and another at a startup. So I was deciding like whether to attend that networking session at all, because I was pretty happy with the two options on the table. I was like deciding this or that, but it wasn't like until the event was almost over, it was a serendipitous moment. I just decided to go shoot up conversation with someone, right? <laughs> Didn't know who he was. Yeah. Had, and he asked me like, hey, what are you up to? And so forth. I told them just roughly like how the startup I'm interviewing at works, how the business model works, where I see the growth and everything. And then that two minute conversation just turned into kind of eventually a job offer, right? <laughs> mm. So let's say we asked earlier when the business toolkit pays off, it pays off in like serendipitous ways. Because uh, yeah. I wasn't trying to pitch anything. I wasn't trying to like impress anybody. Right. Um, it was just naturally how I described. <laughs> I, yeah. Sounds like you're just curious, having a conversation, yeah, like, well, learning I'm stuff, sharing this. what you think yeah, you know. I start up, like, here's why I feel like bullish about yeah. this. This is where I'm concerned. Here's how the business model works. It's like great, it's yeah. like great intuition. So that led to like follow up conversations, met the Accenture team and so forth. And then yeah. having met the team, it's like, wow. Um, yeah, this is like where I want to join. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you quickly, Casey, before we go there, mm -hmm. the, you had mentioned the, the startup and the other offer that you had for those. You said you didn't have to do like the shotgun approach where you're applying to 500 and barely hearing back. What do you think you did right in hindsight? Did you just apply to both and you heard back? Um, and if so, yeah, we want more details as yeah, to what yeah. you think may have worked um, in hindsight. How I would approach job interviewing now, now that I've been like kind of career coaching actually in the background for about six, seven years, uh, I would say I didn't actually do that many things uh, as I would do now, right? Like optimally. But okay. um, what I did, like none of those were uh, like cold applications into a system. So the startup one, I believed a recruiter uh, just noticed my profile and then um, hopped on like LinkedIn profile. Yeah. Yeah. LinkedIn. Okay. Um, okay. Didn't know what I, I, I probably didn't do anything deliberate at the time to uh, like have the right signals or the keywords. So like it gets picked up, but that was through like an inbound opportunity. Um, so those, okay. I, I would always say like try and strive for those for all job candidates out there. Um, which is, I think why content is so powerful because after putting content out there, you get way more inbound. And, um, if they're coming to you, you're always like at uh, an advantageous position because there's already yeah. something they're interested in you, like starting off. So you're not right. starting from zero. You're starting from 30. 
Um, so I was a yeah. startup. And, I feel like that gives you yeah. a little bit of confidence too, oh, like sure. especially more so than you would have otherwise, which that that's not nothing. For for, for sure, for sure. Because uh, it, it's like a the initial conversation is like a human conversation too. And yeah. like I always like um, encourage candidates to, if they reach out to you inbound, always say, hey, like what about my profile actually interested you, right? Just like- a great question. Blank, I never thought about it Like ask the question yeah. because yeah. like I didn't even know to this day what signaling I had in my profile. And there's no way yeah. to find that out now. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, don't yeah. Do what no, I that's did a great question. Shy away from the question. Uh, it's like, oh, yeah. I'm just like so happy someone reached out to me. Let, let me like not push right. the envelope, but just explore it as like curiosity. It's like, you want to know, yeah. right? So yeah. yeah smart. Yeah. Um, the other one was through campus. Um, so it was like a more structured okay. program and they had a dedicated amount of slots. Um, so like, as long as you made like top five or top six, you got a first round interview and then it's just about interviewing well at the time. So there's nice. something to say about institutional education if they do have the right partnerships in that sense. Yeah, so that's kind of a living effects. example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, maybe back to Accenture now. Yeah. You had that natural conversation that led to an eventual interview, maybe a formal interview, and it sounds like probably a job offer thereafter. Uh, yeah, yeah. I would say not so much a formal interview as more just discussion, okay. meet the team. Okay. Um, they, they did grow. What was the position? Um, it was a like consultant level. So uh, in consulting, there's okay. like five rough buckets, right? Uh, analyst, okay. consultant, which they usually put people post graduate degree. And then there's like engagement manager, um, senior manager, principal, director, right? And then there's a partner okay. managing director level. Yeah, after that. Okay. So they put me in the standard okay. um, like post graduate degree with some work experience prior. Um, okay. So where I came in, um, yeah, I mean, like, if you have like the human human connection, especially meeting multiple people on the team, um, the interview process is just very, very different. The sooner it gets into more of just exchanging ideas, getting to know each other, like a process of mutual discovery, rather than some sort of evaluation where it's like very one way. It's like, can you do this? Right. Can you do this? Show me this, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've also built that rapport, you know, you're, you're two humans talking. And then even when it turns technical, you've got that rapport that you fall back on. So you don't just like freak out, I would think as much. Yeah. Yeah. And you find the, the tipping point, there's tipping points in interviews. I think was like important to cover because a lot of the candidates are always focus on like, how do I just like pass the evaluation, pass the evaluation. If you notice that um, the interviewer, like you can tell by body language or sometimes like signals they get off, they want you to succeed. So they'll, they'll yeah. actually like kind of, leave a breadcrumb trail and it's like, hey, um, look at this, right? That's why it's important to build report and dialogue and it's just not yeah. a robotic process yep. where, yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is um, for candidates out there, it's a tip, um, notice when uh, you've already done enough to pass the evaluation. Cause then there's a clear uh, tipping point where it becomes more of a cell chat that they're trying to convince you to come there. Uh, yeah. So like notice when that, pick up when that point comes up and that shift yeah. your gears a little bit, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. So many people I talk to, especially early on there, it's, I guess they think about it like a one-way street and it's not, it's two-way. Like there are many companies out there. And even if you are mm -hmm. desperate for a job, like you are still interviewing them. And I think that's so important to remember when you're in an interview setting. Yeah. Like the language used is very important too. Like the mentality, it's always like getting a job, which I never liked that term. It, it seems like it's yeah. some kind of asset that it's valuable to acquire no matter what. 
the circumstance, yeah. which is not right. true, right? It all depends on the circumstances, right. the terms, everything. It's more of yeah. an exchange, actually, right? Or a process of mutual yeah. discovery. So look at it as right. like you're trying to go out and make a deal rather than yeah. um, I'm trying to acquire this really valuable asset. Because um, it just like it, the, the former mentality, it, it just completely shifts how you approach everything, not just interviewing, even with uh, negotiation afterwards. Yep. Um, it's not really like I'm trying to cut up a pie that's zero sum. It's more right. of a process of mutual discovery that there's a yep. zone that they're willing to accept and a zone that you're willing to accept. And you're just exploring for that overlap, um, yep. which is way more healthier than I'm fighting over a finite piece of cake right yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 since you brought up negotiation casey i'm curious because i had also asked andy about this and he kind of changed my my personal opinion so did you negotiate for that accenture role um at the time i probably under negotiated um because okay. i was just so happy to get the role and, uh, yeah, yeah 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 at the time but yeah. then um it was only until like a year later that I started looking at negotiation as like an actual skill in the job offer context. Right. Um, there are a couple like pieces of content online that kind of shifted my perspective on this. Um, okay. so it's all about like those, are you coming across the right reference points and looking at it right. like a process that's, you're trying to work together to find the overlap um, rather yeah. than it's like me versus you type of thing. Right, 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 um, right, right. Yeah, so I, I didn't look at, um, a process of making a deal that makes sense for both parties. Uh, I still looked at yeah. it as like getting a job at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, fair. And I think at this point in your career, especially transitioning into quote unquote tech, I, I feel like that makes sense. And that definitely, I guess that resonates with me personally, but it is still good to know, uh, I guess, about the field of negotiation, even early on to the extent I, I that you're comfortable you going you got to practice too, right? Um, yeah. Not that many at-bats, you get to practice this stuff. At, um, but yeah. it's such a critical point, right? Um, yeah. In it that, like, if you don't do it, you could leave like so much on the table. But it's yeah. also like looking at it not as like a skill that I just acquired to for that event itself, but looking at right. it similar to meta learning as an evergreen skill that like pays dividends throughout your career because it's not just. Yeah it happens everywhere. Like everything's kind of a negotiation in some sense. No, it really is. Casey, I'd love to drill down on this, maybe just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, let's do it. So yeah. for those listening, and, I, and I'm including myself in this pocket because I admittedly, especially within the tech world, I haven't gone through these negotiation tactics per se. So to those listening, I would imagine one of the biggest fears they have is, okay, I finally have this singular offer. I'm afraid to negotiate because they're going to be offended and they're going to rescind the job offer. So to someone thinking that way, which I know those out there listening, there's at least one of you because I'm, I'm still a little bit in that camp. Although Maybe orders what I, think I know yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So I guess given your experience in that and in negotiations and things that you've studied and learned, what would you say to that? What is a you feel maybe a fail safe approach? Yeah. yeah, I'll give you kind of like my framework of how coach candidates um, approached me for career coaching in the past. Oftentimes sure. it's these critical points like negotiation. So the first thing is um, the mentality, which we talked about a little bit. So I won't like be down on that a little bit more. Um, even if you don't have another offer lined up, um, always look at things as like opportunity cost, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're committing to this, then all the other options are just sealed off, off the table, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, one of the things is I think people undervalue um, their time and 
the fact that they're available to just jump on anything in front of them. If they're preoccupied with commitments already, um, you don't have any ammunition to like go after things, even if they look good. Yeah. That, that's one thing. It's like not getting a job. It's like more just seeking out something that works. Right. Um, the second thing is knowing all the levers that you can pull on the offer. Cause it's like everyone just dead center on the base pay. Um, sure. But like the base pay is also where there's least uh, room for maneuver, especially at larger enterprises. Cause being a hiring manager, like once I moved to like manual life, understand this it's like even when you want to give candidates more and you want to pay for talent there's um rules you have to follow like salary bans and all that so that's like the least um flexible like lever but then it's like knowing all the other levers right so there's um things just like your bonus right um and then things such as your uh like one time sign on bonus which a lot of people just neglect but it can be fairly sizable and it's fairly reasonable to negotiate it even if you don't have obvious things such as relocation costs and all that other stuff. If you're in the middle of a bonus cycle, for example, you're giving up like X months prorated in your current job. Yeah. And you say, Hey, I'm only like two months until like bonus payout on my current one, but I really like to just hit the ground here running. So to make it like beneficial for both. It's like, but um, I want to make it like sting a little bit less financially. If you can kind of like meet me halfway here, like lump sum to cover like the foregone bonus in the other place that, yeah, that, that would be great. Right. Um, yeah. And that approach right there was, yeah. I, I feel like that was perfect because, you know, you're, you're appealing to them from like a human nature and you were also the way that you said that. And I encourage people to to back up and listen to how Casey presented that where it's, it's okay if they say no, like you're not going to be happy, but you can still maybe move on to a different lever or it's not as if you need to pay me more, give me a bigger bonus or I'm walking. It was an empathetic approach, which sounded oh, the, great. The other thing that's very critical is, um, don't make it so that you don't seem winnable. Um, always mm. make it seem like you are winnable and they want to like yeah. get you as a candidate because a, a lot of it is your, your value is um, if they feel like you're a candidate that's like outside of their range and like they feel like mm. no matter how much money they can reasonably throw at you or like title, position, whatever resource, then they're, they're going to get discouraged to actually try and give yeah. you more. But if it feels like, hey, we're yeah. just on the cusp of something working out, and yeah. you're excited to like join the place and you offer like a lot of value that fits like their things and they, they just need to like you know um you know sweeten the pot a little bit on like various aspects and you present them the options to do so it's like hey i'm very flexible i'm working with you to work out something that makes sense um sometimes they yeah. don't even think about all those levers right so it's like the first yeah. playbook is like understand all the levers so there's base pay uh recurring like bonuses one-time bonuses um, vacation, if it's metered vacation, that's effectively pay. Um, so usually like you can negotiate on another week or so, right. Or like some yeah. personal days and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. a lot left on the table. Um, plus, um, start date too. That's another lever mm. that sometimes they want you to start earlier and you say, well, I do want to take a break because, uh, especially if you're like me, I leave a lot of vacation on the table <laughs> <laughs> like switch jobs yeah. and then I'm like under traveled and all that stuff. It's like, well, I, I would benefit from like a mental reset, but I understand if you yeah. have like X pressing project, I do want to like get you off yeah. to a good start. So yeah, uh, I'm willing to like move my start date up a little bit. And that becomes like another lever that you can play with. Sure. Right. Um, yeah. I love the under travel too. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that. I'll attribute it yeah, to under you. Traveled but that's, under that's a great, PTO. That's a great term. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. 
one thing I learned recently is when you're going for executive level positions, it's not just about the package that you negotiate, but also the support you get. So if you realize there's $20 million of technical debt that you're taking on as a CTO position, then it's like, you want to make sure you negotiate budgets before you decide to take that job. Um, this is mm -hmm. more for like Makes senior sense. level candidates, but then um, yeah. the things you have to negotiate for are even wider as you move up. So it's like, as you're like yeah. negotiating for IC positions, it's best to develop that muscle early <laughs> and know all the yeah. levers that apply to you, right? Or negotiate headcount, right. negotiate funding, negotiate timeline. Um, if you're, yeah. if you have a certain level of accountability that you need to deliver on certain things, especially if they tie to your bonus, which um, if you get up to like executive level pay leadership positions, um, your base is fairly tapped out at a certain point. There's yeah. a pretty hard ceiling um, depending on your market. Yeah. It's all about the yeah. uh, incentive and like uh, performance-based comp after that. It's like yeah. RCUs, yeah. various forms of options. Right. Um, but then you want to make right. sure you have the re resources to uh, feasibly deliver on that too. Execute. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And that, and that maybe per se may not be immediately relevant to some of the listeners out there, but I still feel like that framework that you laid out is invaluable and may very well serve them later on in their for, careers. For sure. Well. I, I wish I knew all the levers leading up to like the CEO level, like early, even yeah. when you're yeah. like an IC analyst, um, junior yeah. developer, because um, you could just gray yeah. out those boxes. But a huge thing with going back to learning topic, things need to be seeded early in your mind and they need to marinate mm -hmm. over the years for them to be internalized. Yep. Rarely yep. is it like someone tells you something yesterday and you fully internalized it today. It's not about like how many reps you get on that thing in the day, but if you seeded that idea, right. it's like, well, I, I've noticed these negotiating levers by listening to this podcast four years ago. And then now I'm interviewing yep. for my first like leadership position. Then that yep. recall is going to be so strong. Because you're yeah. subconsciously I, thinking about it in the four years. Yeah. And related to that, and to relate that to programming explicitly, I, I experienced that same exact thing, Casey, because I was first introduced to programming. I'm pretty sure it was 2019. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I dabbled for a couple of years. And then fast forward to, I think it was, I'm getting, losing track of my years now, but I think 2021, when I actually did the boot camp, mm -hmm. I learned a lot of things that I had had that previous exposure to. And to your point, the recall, it, it, it like solidified concepts that I had previously perused i guess and it was so much easier to catch back up so to your point don't be afraid like if you don't grok something immediately em embrace that fact embrace that just like casey said a year from now or, or maybe a few weeks from now or whatever it is you're going to be exposed to that again potentially and it's going to have you're going to have a lot more context just because you've got that pre-exposure yeah that's one of the biggest uh call them like secrets to success but it's also one of the hardest mentalities to instill in terms of like um, junior team members or like coaching clients or even people yeah. in my boot camp. They always want something that they see a problem already in front of them that uh, they're lacking and they need to like go solve for that, right? In the immediate term. Yeah. Um, yeah. What like I always believe like uh, chance favors the prepared mind. So yeah. if you don't even know, like if there's like the ignorance pool is like very big then you don't even know an opportunity when it's staring you in the face, right? Yeah. But then it's like, but then if you only solve things that um, you come across, your surface area of what you choose to learn is very small. So, yeah. so that constrains you in a lot of ways, right? So going yeah. back to that, it's yeah. like, well, I'm sure a lot of listeners don't care about how you negotiate for a leadership level. Um, they may eventually. They may eventually, though. but it's like, see the idea. And yeah. 
maybe there's a serendipitous moment where um, you run into someone else, right? That's senior, that's like yeah. going there and like, you can, you can bring that to the table. It's like, hey, um, here's something I learned. I don't know if it's relevant yeah. for you, but I just want to put it out there. And that yeah, may lead like to conversation. a conversation that is serendipitous and could lead to very good things. Right. Just like that one you had with Accenture that ended exactly. up turning into that, that first job out of master's. Yeah, if perfect. you can't use so it, full circle. find someone else that could use the knowledge and share. Um, yeah. And like teaching is yeah. another um, secret to kind of learn, not, not so secret, but like people need to do it more. Um, you're never fully yeah. ready to teach something. I find it's like you get better mm. as you teach it. So uh, yeah. that's like kind of touches on like why I decided to take up the part-time boot camp thing for yeah. Last four years because um, I learned a lot yeah. from teaching students and from the students itself and those exchanges yeah. and them exposing me on things that like I don't fully know to like the right level of depth right so yeah, yeah what, kind of forces yeah, you, you to, yeah, you to do to your ready. research and yeah, yeah you, you have to be ready um same with content um you put something out there um you have a heightened sense of accountability to make sure that yeah. you're learning you actually know what you're talking about and you explore those paths and yeah. knowing that like you never fully cover all the bases um, and like embrace feedback when it does come. So it, it's yes. like you get even two more reps minimum, right? Cause you, you try and up your yeah. game before you publish. And then once you publish, yeah. you get that additional like interaction at the yeah. end. Yeah. No, I love that discussion. So, but I want to go back to your story. So you're at Accenture and I want to ask you now, Casey, so back to that point in your storyline, but still zooming out a little bit in your mind, now that you'd landed this role as I'm not sure if you were, Thinking of yourself as a data scientist, were you, I guess at what point did it click where, hey, I had broken into tech or was it never even maybe that binary? It was just like you were exploring an interest and now you were down this path. Uh, I think at that point I was, I, I knew I was like, okay, I crossed the chasm. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, yeah, because cool. I joined their uh, applied intelligence at the time it's called, but then it's like analytics, AI, uh, all things okay. like data, uh, ML related, right? Um, so yeah. we stepped into okay that field, um, so I considered a data scientist uh, okay. persona, right? Back then, and it worked I, on modeling I, and yeah. Uh, okay. I apologize for the lazy question, but I, I'm still curious and I think the audience will be as well. Like, how did you feel at, at that moment? Like, were you just exuberant that you had broken into tech and that you were actually getting to do, I, I guess, what had become a passion for you for a living? Um, because it, it's like everything was new to me at the time and the learning curve was very steep um just heads down trying to execute honestly and okay. uh okay. you don't have that much time to sit back and like yeah, you can't it wasn't it. until like that. six eight months into it that like i really found my footing and the momentum was like very very good um that i started okay. like introspection and all that and then thinking about things that i okay. don't necessarily like skills i don't necessarily need like offer negotiation uh it wasn't like no. job hunting or anything at the time so but then when you okay. free up mental uh capacity it's actually very important not to be always in like busy transactional mode like do 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 um yeah it, it's okay to firefight for a while but eventually try and get on a steady path where you have like more white space in your calendar allow serendipity to happen yeah. um yeah. so yeah like no, it's wrong maybe that doesn't answer your question directly but it was like full execution mode in the beginning and then yeah. when i found my footing a little bit more i had more space to explore yeah. and think about other things yeah yeah, no, I, I, that, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I feel like I'm, I often say that I'm guilty of not living in the present or enjoying the present because I'm so focused on the future. And I've talked to several guests that have, I guess, 
talked about different ways that they practice, whether that be meditation or gratitude practice, something like that, to just try to be more present. So I am I am working on that. And and even when I made the transition and was fortunate enough to land the role with with LinkedIn, I was definitely appreciative of that. But I feel like I probably didn't appreciate that to the extent that I I I, I guess I should have. I don't know. I'm guilty of that too. I'm very future oriented that I don't celebrate yeah. the milestones um, enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But like, I always try and limit like the, the shoulds in your life. Cause I already mm. catch the word should it, it's like trying mm. to go against what your natural inclination is to do. Yeah. And if like yeah. more future orientation actually makes you happy, I find um, then it's yeah. like, there's no guilt in focusing on that too. Yeah. 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 It's just to me, I guess it could be dangerous because if if you extrapolate that over the course of the rest of your theoretical life, you know, you're always looking at the the carrot in front of you and never actually enjoy where you're at. And to your point, you may go far, but yeah, I don't know. The, it's interesting yeah, the, the if you wouldn't have carrot, enjoyed it more. Uh, whenever I notice there's like a long, arduous path and it's just chasing a carrot, I always pause and reflect because it should be more like slices of carrots along the way like you have to kind of enjoy mm. the process and um, yeah. chasing that metaphorical big carrot or the peak of the mountain um it, it's never what you expect it to be um because yeah. i had like these various inflection points because it's like every career pivot i've had there's always scratching some itch so going back to like the career yeah. sorry the, the underlying theme is i always try and address what i feel like is an important bottleneck and a gap i have that i can't solve for the bottleneck properly right so png mm. to data science, Accenture, all that was there's these problems that I feel like I'm missing something in my arsenal to solve and they're being solved suboptimally. So data science gave you tools to do that. Um, right. And then when I did right. data science for a while, um, I noticed that various uh, like client projects that a lot of models just never see the light of day and there's a lot of failed initiatives. And then when I took on an internal role, um, when they started the innovation hub, um, so I joined as their like data science uh, resident expert so-called, right? Um, I noticed that, yeah, like even internally when we're trying to build stuff, um, a lot of it just stays in PLC, uh, stays in mm -hmm. prototype and doesn't get off the ground. So that led me to the next uh, investigation. It's like, what's getting stuck? Well, it's all upstream. It's all engineering. Um, it, it's all like mostly data engineering at the time was kind of what I landed on. I was like, well, okay. I have to understand like the data platform a little bit better, have to brush up on cloud, I have to get to the infrastructure level, uh, understand architecture. So it's like, okay, I have like another missing skill in my arsenal. So then I started like probing and trying to find um, ways, a role that would allow me to like build those skills while bringing something to the okay. table as well. So that kind of, yeah. Okay, so that was the next plan. Yeah, so that okay. was one I of like the that. things, which is um, that thing in the problem solving toolkit. The other thing was I wanted to move from project leadership to actually leading a team and building a team over time because when you're leading a project it's like very uh you band you're a group of people who band together and then you go solve for that client problem and then the project ends you disband and then you, re you remake yep. the team again right it's all yep. like transient but you're missing out yep. on a lot of the managerial aspects of it where right are you really accountable for hiring like if it's actually your team for the long term and not just for the project duration then every hire you choose to make right? Um, you're, you're living with the consequences or benefits of that for yeah. a long time, right? Um, there's also yeah. like people's career development. If they're like on your team, then like you're accountable for making sure they get the growth they need, um, the projects yeah. they need, everything. Um, 
So that's what kind of led to the next pivot um, where, yep. yeah, there's something in my problem solving skill set that solves for a bottleneck and uh, getting like real managerial experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to gloss over like the data engineering chapter, but uh, I guess I would kick it back to you in terms of what you think is the most important aspect to cover next in your your story and your transition to where you are today. Is it the the data exploration side of things or is it jumping to the management? And why not go back and get another master's degree? Because to those listening, it sounds like maybe that's been a tool that's been used in the past to build that expertise in that domain. So why not do that? I assume you didn't do that because it's not on your LinkedIn. When, when giving uh, career advice, one of the biggest things I found is um, only showcasing your results and not unpacking the process has very limited usefulness mm. for other people. So I was trying to avoid um, things like, well, that led to a good outcome. And then let me like replicate right. exactly what he did. Like I'm very cautious right. of that because right, right. they're uh, idiosyncratic things mostly. Sure. Uh, or there's things that are just right place, right time, right? Um, Yep. So maybe, yeah, let's explore that topic of um, how to upskill and like break into like a certain part that you want, whether yeah. it's like um, non-tech to tech or um, IC to management, right? Like uh, sure. camp versus institutional. So I think before anyone considers like institutional education or like any, any kind of big investment for that matter of time, money, energy, resources in general, always explore the lower cost options first and give it like an honest attempt before um, just defaulting to what seems like a structured thing that someone else takes care of your learning for you. And then you get a certification at the end, which has some signaling value, but uh, I'll put a pin in that for now. I'll come back to the point of how much okay. value does that actually have, right? In terms of yeah. Yeah. hiring managers and yeah, job market. Um, so it's like yeah. the point is always go for the lower, uh, easier, accessible option first, which is self-taught, really. <laughs> um, yeah, like even before signing up for any boot camp or a master's degree or anything long, expensive, why not throw two weeks at? Just pick a concept, uh, see if you can learn it on your own, figure out where you're getting stuck. Um, and if where you're getting stuck ends up being, well, I need more guidance rather than I just need to spend more time on it, then it's like, yeah, maybe seek like some guidance, right? Hmm. Go talk to a mentor or someone a little bit ahead. It could be a 30 minute conversation, can unblock you and then you continue. But it's like, I just need to spend more yep. time. Then it's like, just spend more time. You don't need to go pay yeah, for got something, it. right? Um, to do. But then um, it's always like letting what your actual bottleneck guide your decisions and starting with the lower cost option, which is how I navigated my career, right? It's always like, not randomly because someone says this is a hot skill. It's more, um, here's a problem that I've actually encountered and I'm missing certain things because it's being solved suboptimally. And I go acquire those skills so I can focus on the problem solving aspect of it. Um, so yeah. it's like you're laser focused on being able to solve problems effectively rather than playing for uh, what I call false proxies or signaling value. Um, it'll pay huge dividends in the long term. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So now I would ask about, but Casey, what about the the degree? I, I don't get a degree if I do the the self taught route. What would you say to that? Yep. So it goes back to um, just first principles thinking. Like, what what does a degree actually offer, right? And um, best way to check rather than like guessing 
because uh, we always like have a narrative we tell ourselves, right? Um, sometimes some cost yes. fallacy, sometimes we rationalize our own decisions or a path of least resistance. So knowing that there's cognitive biases there, just go talk to a handful of hiring managers for companies that you would interview at, just see if you can grab 15 minutes of their time or pick up a career coach. Like coaching is very underutilized. I feel like in the industry, because a lot of people they'll make, um, they're unwilling to make a $200 investment in coaching, but we'll just kind of make a 10K investment in a bootcamp without yeah. um, thinking yeah. about it. It's like- Makes no it, sense, it but no you're sense. absolutely yeah. right. Like I would honestly like anyone who has a pivotal point, um, consider getting coaching. Um, Cause like I'd much rather like just spend 200 bucks, a couple hundred bucks an hour of time for someone who's like been down the path to help you navigate or give you a framework to think about it. Right. Um, yeah. That really valuable. Even if it, you make a 10% better decision from that, right. your payout is like 50 X because yeah. the alternative is you make a 10% suboptimal decision, but then your investment is like 25 K and six months of time. Yeah. Or two years, yeah, exactly. And, the opportunity cost of yeah, that time, 150k, 200k, right? Plus the opportunity yeah. cost of like you go for a um, advanced degree or so. That's two years, 200k in tuition if you're international, plus like two year foregone wages. It's yep. Massive, right? Um, yeah. Even if you make a 10% better decision on that, like going back to like poker terms, expected value wise, just on the monetary aspect alone, that's 30k in expected value. But you're investing yeah. like 400 bucks for an expected value of 30K. <laughs> this is like the, the convincing for people to get coaching is always like, well, I would throw 200 bucks for uh, even like a 10% chance better decision, right? Before I make right. a 30K right. investment or 100K yeah. investment. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is like same with negotiation. I see um, the problem is like, I don't want to learn negotiating until I have an offer in front of me and then I don't know what to do. Um, yeah. seen that a lot of times where I'm trying to slow, gradually fix that mentality, right? Yeah. Where yeah. if you work with a coach for uh, long-term before you even embark on the job search, that's a box you should tick even before you send yeah. your first application out. Um, yep. cause you know, um, to get the outcome you want, you're going to have to go through that stage, right? You're playing yeah. for an offer. So, you know, if you work backwards from there, what comes before like signing the offer is negotiating. So it's like, I should yeah. at least have some competency or some baseline of how negotiation works rather than getting up to that process and then panicking and saying like, can anybody help me or can someone help me negotiate yeah. the offer? That's putting yourself in a very yeah. bad position. Yeah. Um, so like, why not pay a few hundred for coaching upfront? Just tell you how the process right. works. Um, lay out yeah. the framework kind of we went through earlier. So at least you know, right? Um, yeah. Going in. So that's like the proactive mindset is what I'm trying to, yeah. And I feel like most, I think you are, you had mentioned, I think you do some coaching on the side as well. And I feel like with most coaches out there, I feel like you have the opportunity to have that introductory meeting to make sure that you have that, that personnel, I guess, or persona fit just to make sure that it seems like a good match for the prospective person out there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like I'm always happy to take like these meetings, um, just like understand people's situation. Um, yeah. cause I, I'm very much about like, here's like something that works for you rather than I package yeah. something that works for me and pitch yeah. it as the be all end all that works for everybody, yeah. which is just not true, right? Cause the idiosyncrasies, there, there's a lot of background subconscious things that I, I don't even know that yeah. I have, right? Maybe sure. I got exposed sure. to something early um, 
like uh, the business is a good example, right? I don't subconsciously like, consciously think about, hey, I have a business degree, so I have financial literacy across like all these things. I have a right. sense of like how marketing works because I worked at PNG for a substantial period of time. Yeah, I don't consciously think about those things, and they may not come up right in a conversation. Yeah. But tell someone entering their Got first that. management position, like, hey, here's like how you navigate your budget. I might just like gloss over it. Um, it's like expert yeah. trap, right? So. Yeah. Um, what seems easy to me may not seem easy for the other person um, or yeah. vice versa. So it's always important to like sit down and understand their specific situation, um, yeah. what they have to work with and what's kind of the optimal decision for them rather than I took this decision. So you should too. No, absolutely. And I think I see you were maybe at the end, you were an engagement manager of data science with Accenture. And I think I also see you were there for two years. I made, yeah, I made that pro progress very quickly. <laughs> so okay. I made Sounds progress like really quick. And then, um, the, the manual life role was also um, so serendipitous because they're, they're one of the um, client engagements was handling at the time. It's like built. And this was after Accenture oh, during, for those during, listening. During Accenture, I had the relationships because we did work for them. Okay. Uh, and then, okay. and then it's like afterward, it's like um, w when you have those connections and everything, uh, the opportunities okay. come up. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. It, it looks like random on the surface, but there, there's always some underlying uh, thread right underneath. So it's always yeah. like, um, make those connections. You never know, like where it could lead. Um, always like trying to help yeah. people like do good work. Yes. Um, don't, don't look at just like, what is the immediate problem or two I have to solve? Right. If it's like related to anything within your domain or adjacent to your domain, spend some time, yeah. at least check it out. Um, you never know. Yeah. 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 Do you want to talk about the transition from Accenture to Manuel? Yeah. Yeah. That was my, one of my toughest transitions because um, there's a lot of new to it. So it's like first time actually running a team, right? Um, first time, like you're stepping into kind of a new domain or sub branch in tech where most of my experience prior to was in analytics. Um, haven't spent like that much time in the industry because it was like two years roughly. And then went into position director level. Um, so it's like handed a lot of responsibility. Um, so it's like navigating that pivot was important. The number one thing I tell people when they move from IC to management is, uh, I guess, two things that are tied together. Um, one is what got you success so far. You can't keep doubling down on that and expect to be successful in a management role. And then the flip side of that is you're transitioning from working inside a system to needing to work on the system and off optimizing the system itself. Uh, so that comes with like a whole new set of skills. So it's like knowing um, when a process is suboptimal. Did you understand this during this transition from IC to management? That's or did it take one a of while? the uh, advantages I had because coming from a business background and uh, entrepreneurship and all that, you're, you're always like looking for the bottlenecks um, rather than thinking about like, how do I just put more hours and effort to solve this myself? Um, you're always yeah. thinking about like, hey, um, taking a step back, does this make sense to solve a different way? Or like noticing there's a bottleneck in the first place that probably like the yeah. table stakes and then figuring out the right path, which is 80% yeah. time not like just doing it yourself and brute forcing through it. And so not to gloss over it, but it looks like you were at Manulife for two years. And it also looks like according to this timeline, you ascended pretty quickly all the way up to the head of engineering. Well, I had a role pivot. So I didn't get the engineering role right away. So okay. there's like an intermediary step or stepped into more of a strategy function. Uh, 
Okay. And then they had someone else um, at the helm of engineering. Then okay. there's some turnover four months in. And instead of going okay. external, right? Um, yeah, they, they took a risk. So call on me. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of pieces to pick up. And uh, it wasn't easy, right? Like um, growing the team, uh, we started with about six people. Didn't really get up to 10 for quite a long time. So like doing a lot of hiring, a lot of team management. There's bunch of initiatives happening concurrently, um, a lot of stakeholders, partnerships, cross-functionals uh, to manage. Then eventually, yeah. like, uh, grew the team more than 25, roughly 30 a peak. Wow. Uh, yeah, direct reports the, to you? Yeah, direct reports. So then okay. that was the time where I had to figure out uh, a manager of managers type of things. Like, mm -hmm. um, what IC can I move up to? take on more managerial yeah. responsibilities and it's always tough like it wasn't perfect it's rough some people like doing the work but then yeah. the the switch is very hard to yeah. not just like telling people to do the work but then how do you be a force multiplier so it makes it easier for other people right. to do the work right so it's like working right. inside the system and they're very good at working inside the system but it's like quite difficult to figure out how to work on the system yeah 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 so throughout this tough transition that you mentioned, were you able to apply like previous data science principles that you had picked up and frameworks to help you through it? Uh, where okay, so we had a uh, one of our main stakeholders was a uh, data science team. So like half of our engineering team was making sure the data scientists were enabled to um, do their work and all that. So I think that's part of maybe played a factor in it where I had a data science background that was like empathy empathy on the other end. And then that play on that intersection between data engineering and data science felt more natural because you know what yeah. it feels like to be in their seat and the conversation just yeah. flows. Um, yeah. There's like subtleties are very important, like speaking the same language. So you don't have to over explain yeah. or they don't have to over explain, right? Um, kind of get where yeah. they're coming from. Um, so I would yeah. say that, yeah, that was definitely helped a lot. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, one quick tip is um, when for listeners like looking for growth and new roles, I always encourage uh, having somewhat, it doesn't have to be a 50-50 split, but look for roles where you can bring 50% of like what you already have to the table and like contribute right away. And then the other half is like something maybe like you want to pick up and learn and grow and pick up, mm. right? So it's like that fine balance. I like that. Yeah, yeah, it could be 70-30, yeah. it could be like whatever, you could shift the dials depending on... Um, your appetite, um, what's available yeah. to you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gives you that room for growth. And it's not just coming in and dominating everything and getting bored immediately and just stagnating. Yeah. Yeah. And play on the adjacent spaces to your function. Um, I mm. grew a lot from playing on the intersections. Um, there's not a lot of people playing on the intersections, but most of the problems stem from the intersections. <laughs> yeah. Cross-functional aspect. So bring us to your position today, because it looks like you were at Manulife for two years. and Yeah, roughly two and change. And then I decided to go back to consulting. Um, the market was picking up and felt like, well, I definitely checked all the boxes I wanted <laughs> during my Manulife experience. So it's like data engineering checked, um, leading a team, growing a team checked. Um, that an original problem that led me to Manulife, which is um, having trouble shipping models to production. So mm. after we shipped our 10th model, I feel like, yeah, there's a process to get there now. Got it. Um, just yeah. checked. And then just looking at what's ahead. Um, it's always like every role, you have your span of control and then your span of influence. 
you just kind of exhaust what's in your span of control first. And then you do as much as you can in your span of influence. And then at that point, it's like you either need a different kind of role to have a bigger span of control and influence, or depending on the level of patients, playing that influence game to see yeah. you know, what you can do from there. Um, market was very dynamic at the time too. Um, you're just looking at like what's in front of you, what you achieved. So I'm like, I'm good with what I achieved. Um, yeah. Do some like soul searching, exploring. And I really liked my time in consulting. Because uh, I grew, yeah. grew a lot there and always curious what it's like to be at a more senior level and how that yeah. works. Um, so instead of yeah. uh, like doing the work, there's always like the upstream in terms of the sales cycle and go to market in terms of like generating work for other people and then bringing yeah. people in and pairing them with like the right projects aligned to their skill sets and everything and developing talent yeah. that way. Um, yeah. So I was like, yeah, well, that's an extension off of something I didn't have too much exposure on when. Yeah. I was like moving up the ranks at uh, Accenture. So yeah. consulting opportunity came up. Um, yeah. So it was like, well, you know, this is definitely like something I didn't explore before. Right. Uh, you're moving from internal where the work comes to you and the paradigm shifts now that you have to go to market and generate work. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, you're going from like where you're the client to where you're the vendor or provider, right. Um, trying yeah. to like find solutions for people. And you're also, is it during this time span that you're this instructor with BrainStation? Yeah. So, uh, I started, I think sometime during my extensure tenure Okay. and then, yeah, carried out throughout my manual life and a little bit into my Capgemini. Uh, Was this the bootcamp that you referred to earlier? Were you yes, instructing? Yes, the BrainStation. Yeah. That, okay. Uh, part-time instructor for them gotcha. for their data ML curriculum. Okay. Um, so was interesting because I actually really liked it. Um, the interact with students, um, you felt like you could just kind of, there's a curriculum course, right? But um, it gives you the creative expression that you can extend the curriculum in certain ways, link people to resources that you feel like are relevant for them. And it kind of encapsulates the coaching aspect of it too with their students because uh, some of them just want to, stay in their current job, but like upskill. Some of them want to make an internal pivot um, within their company. Some people are um, trying to break in. So through a bootcamp too. Or, and then there's some people looking to retool too. Um, so those problem areas I'm like super fascinated by. It's like, yeah. how do you uh, move? Like, how do you uh, break in? How do you uh, transition into like a completely different role, different company? And then like, how do you uh, recalibrate your skill sets? Um, it's something like definitely interested in solving, right? Yeah. And it, it goes, it all ties together, uh, like you mentioned, <laughs> where yeah. um, like it goes back to the teaching roots, right? Where, yeah, all these things are instructing, sharing uh, what you know, enabling others. Um, yeah. yeah, it's always had a soft spot for that. Yeah, it says here you were the first instructor to teach the ML machine learning curriculum. Is that yeah? So when you... they just released it, like version one, uh, I went in. <laughs> Cleans it up a it. bit. Well, yeah, yeah, like kind of shake out the curriculum a little bit. Um, yeah, just like work with the students through it. Um, it's not all smooth, but you know, it's part of the experience. And then the the really good feeling is like how it gets better. Yeah. Um, every time you do it, and then you get a little bit better on like, hey, here's how you actually approach this concept, or um, maybe like I sequence things a little bit differently. Mm. That uh, this concept needs to move up a little bit more, right? Because yeah. uh, it's prerequisite knowledge for you to better understand this one, yeah. um, or find like an additional resource and then link them there. Um, yeah. Or sometimes it's they want to hear a personal story too, 
So it's mm. not just dry delivery of technical yeah. concepts. Yeah. They, they want to hear, it's like, hey, how does this apply in industry? Does it apply in industry? Yeah. Um, does it apply on the job? Does it apply during interviews? Yeah. Oh, very cool, man. And these, so it looks like these are the two things you're doing. What what else are you working on? You'd mentioned the coaching that you're doing. You'd also mentioned content creation. What are you working on? Yeah, I'm getting into the content creation game recently. Um, so what I found is um, I benefited a lot from other people's knowledge and everything like mentors, uh, role models, all that. And I felt like, well, I, I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't like, take in those things at the time. But I feel like I'm not the only one who would benefit from this stuff, right? And I have a lot like trapped up here and on my Notion doc, Google Docs, right? Uh, To try to control the stuff. Like, well, instead of just sitting on this and it never makes it out into the world, um, the platforms are very powerful right now, right? Like LinkedIn, you can get content out to a lot of people very quickly. it's always been like adverse. It's like, well, you know, when you first start, it, it was always like antsy. It's like, well, I'm putting myself out there, right? Yep. Um, but then once you do it, you realize, yep. hey, there's serendipitous conversations. There's people who actually benefit from it. And if yep. it, even if it like one piece of content changes one person's career trajectory, honestly, I, I believe like that's just worth doing on yeah. its own. Yeah. Without I any agree. other like return. Like, yeah. It just if it helps at least one person, um, it's worth doing. Um, yeah. and I also want to pave a path for others who helped me to start sharing a little bit more as well yeah um because i always hesitant so i was like well why don't you do it then they're like well you could do it right yeah yeah i'll just lead by example and do it and sometimes when you have platforms like your podcast for example it gives people an easy entry point to come in and share their stuff yeah because a lot of times it's the friction that stops people right it's like well I have an interesting conversation i could have with this person but i don't really have a podcast format to get it out right right so I was like, well, I'll just make a podcast, even if yeah. um, it's just a shell. You just have the basics set up. Next time you have an interesting conversation with a friend, um, just you would have the conversation anyways. Yep. So just hit record, and you know, so more people out there. Get on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, man, you you nailed the origin story for this podcast that we're talking on right now. So it wasn't a it wasn't a treasure trove of information in my head, but a rather more of a crowdsource treasure trove of heads like yours to to kind of crowdsource these transition stories and to talk about all the nuance along the way. And I'm just, I'm so glad to bring people like you on to, to have this conversation. Absolutely. I, I think it starts with having a platform for yourself to get something out there. Yeah. And then it's like a lot of it is solving the problem for yourself. Yeah. And then um, it becomes a platform for other people to kind of like latch on and like yeah. share their stuff as well. Yeah. Before we wrap, I'd love to throw you on the hot seat and better understand the psychology of Casey, if you're up for that. Uh, sure. I always like these rapid fire questions at the end of the podcast. <laughs> All right. Let's, yeah. do it. Let's do it. All right. Casey, what does your typical morning routine look like? Uh, not as structured as I like it to be, but usually what I like to do is, uh, other than the usual stuff, it's like wake up, personal hygiene, all that, which is not too interesting. Workout is like hit or miss. Okay. What I find is um, a lot of the advice given, a lot of people like to work out first thing and I see the benefits. But it's kind of like what works for you. For me, it's like my body's sure. not awake yet. So yeah. Usually coffee, consume some content that primes my brain for the day. Mm. And I like getting into this habit of uh, trying to pick one thing and internalizing it for the day. So what I do, uh, I actually wrote a LinkedIn post about it 
uh, yesterday, <laughs> um, is I keep something open of the concept I want to internalize. So it just removes the friction. I look at it to prime my brain first thing in the morning, and then I go about my day. Um, then it's like, well, if I have five minutes, I would have it open. I would just like revisit yeah. it. So you get like Easy. another rep in, it's like safe space repetition. And at the end, it's like, well, maybe like journal a little bit, right? Um, yeah. You just fully internalize it, close it up. And then if next day it's like, it's not internalized, I just open the same thing. If not, I move on to yeah. the next thing. Um, yeah. So I don't have a morning routine, I guess, like if that makes sense. I, I try to get some sunlight, some exercise, yeah. um, some healthy amount of stuff in my system. <laughs> I actually believe in flexibility, but rather yeah. than like, strict schedule like 7 30 i do this yeah 8 15 i do this it's more like here yeah. are the three things that i try and squeeze in before i'm in more reactive mode and I start yeah. my day i used to have that rigidity but yeah married children you can definitely priorities change but the framework doesn't necessarily have to as long oh, as yeah, you're sure. to your point well, you keep I, that flexibility I have two kids right so I yeah I was, okay <laughs> yeah. so you know <laughs> you definitely yeah know. yeah the, the your morning routine becomes like supporting their morning routine yes yes Yes, yeah, it does. Yeah. All right. If you woke up tomorrow with unlimited money, what do you think you would do every day? Um, not too different from my like coaching, teaching, um, just like lifelong learner. Honestly, yeah. like my ideal um workflow, other than like pure leisure, where you're just like recharging your batteries, is learning stuff that I just feel interested in learning, or it's like another tool to add to my tool belt to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. Um internalizing it, going through that process, and then uh, turning it, packaging it up, turning it into a piece of content, shipping it. And then yeah. at the tail end, it's like interacting with people who like consumed it and then the follow on, yeah. whether that be teaching, coaching or whatever. I'd actually do yeah. this, that that type of workflow um, if like financial resources wasn't a constraint. Yeah, I think that means you found your calling, Casey. Any books or podcasts that have had a big impact on you? I always follow uh, people who have are good curators and good tastemakers. Um, okay. For example, like you look at the popular ones, um, like Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman, Tim Ferriss, right? Uh, like whoever it is within that like sphere doesn't really matter, but they just find people who are able to find really good guests. And I like diverse range of fields. Um, yeah. yeah, like like Tim Ferriss does like high performers from like all walks of life, right? So I've yeah. consumed a lot of his stuff over the years. And yeah. that's where I found uh, new avenues of content to kind of mm -hmm. consume as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, my tip is like, instead of trying to find everybody yourself, find a couple good curators mm -hmm. and comb their creative lineage. I like that. Yeah, that's I actually wrote an article, uh, released my Substack newsletter um, last okay. week. So it's on nice. the creative process itself. So one of the key things I learned through like writing that article and doing the research is um, all of it is like you need some creative inspiration. You can't yeah. create if you don't consume. Like you can't get mm -hmm. fans if you aren't a fan of other people. And yeah. it's just like climbing that creative lineage. Like think about it like a tree. You explore all the branches. And then after you're done, like exploring multiple branches on your tree, the nice thing is yeah. you become your own branch. And then other people yeah. discover you as well. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I like that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about today or anything else you think somebody trying to make a transition needs to hear that we haven't already talked about? Um, 
I guess I'll like kind of recap the key things if there are like sure. a couple of t- takeaways. Um, one is, I guess, have a lot of reference points and creative sources of inspiration or like role models are important. But then it's like balancing that with um, not taking everything they did and then correlating it to like uh, that outcome that you want. So it's like having a lot of reference points, but having like a strong filter in your mind uh, for what is specific to their situation and what works for you and not forcing it if it doesn't work for you. Um, That's one of the main things. Um, The other thing is um, for people, I'll talk about two transition points. One is um, breaking into tech, especially from non-technical backgrounds. And then the second one being like when you're transitioning from IC to management. So the first one, um, always keep in mind that don't look at skills that you're lacking versus traditional backgrounds. Like don't mm-hmm. undervalue skills that you have that are useful, even though the interview format may not like on the surface level fit those skills. Yeah. Um, they have, you have an edge and you have skills that other people uh, really want. So don't look at it as like, I'm not as good as coding. I'm not good as uh, system design, right? Um, there's a lot of, things that you can bring to the table. And hopefully like through my story, there are like actual examples, right? Yeah, I love that. My business background. Um, Second thing is the big takeaway for ICs to managers. Um, Treat management as a craft, but it's also like the mentality is important. Um, So it's like working in the system versus on the system Um, rather than how do I be faster, better, a uh, pair of hands, right? <laughs> like do more of what got me success so far. Instead, it's yeah. like, how do I be a force multiplier for others yeah. so they can be successful um, in the system itself, whether yeah. you're there or not, even because you're making yeah. system level improvements and process improvements. Yeah. 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 Cool, man. Yeah. Well, Casey, where can people go to find out more about you, support your work, or learn about what you're doing? Um, yeah, post pretty much daily on LinkedIn. So, uh, give me a follow okay. there. Um, also building out my newsletter on Substack. Um, okay. we're focusing a lot more on content to come. Um, so it's like trying to do more of these, uh, like podcasts, public media appearances, events, so forth. Yeah. Um, we speed out, speak, speak at a few conferences as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So just follow my journey. It starts with LinkedIn and then, uh, I'll make everything easily discoverable from there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. And I'll add, definitely add uh, links to the show notes. And Casey, I want to thank you again, man, for coming on and, and sharing your journey so far and definitely interested in seeing how it continues to play out because you've done some amazing pivots so far. Thank you for having me on. And always like, I always appreciate people who offer a platform for other people to get their ideas out there. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Spotify. It's a free way you can support the show and help other people just like you find the story and others like it. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. And most importantly, if you know someone that might be interested in breaking into tech, tell them about the show.